You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Are you a realist or a dreamer? Most people would like to be thought of as realists. It seems more mature, more adult. But I believe that we are all more motivated by our dreams than we care to admit. Creative people are self-proclaimed dreamers. Hello, storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited that our sponsor is Audible because they give us the opportunity to enrich our lives with books. As you know, I'm a firm believer that readers are leaders, and you can get a downloadable free audiobook of your choice from Audible. You can choose from 180,000 titles and get a month free trial of all of Audible service by going today to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. I'm always looking for ways to evolve this show. I've recently introduced the one-word story episodes, short episodes, and I'm getting great feedback about those. I will definitely continue them. Also, continue to let me know the things that you would love to see in this show, perhaps things that I never even thought about, and I will do my best to incorporate them into Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Keep sending your comments and questions to loseclub at gmail.com, L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is a creative woman who puts big dreams on the big screen. She's an actor, writer, dancer, and film director. Her first feature film, Becoming Burlesque, just opened in movie theaters to rave reviews. The Hollywood Reporter calls her one of the six Canadian directors to watch. Becoming Burlesque had a successful world premiere at the Whistler Film Festival. It won Best Feature at the Texas Star Ranch Festival and Best Film at the Tryon Film Festival. Adam Agoyan, an internationally famous Canadian film director, called her short film NIMBY Extraordinary. Get excited to listen to Jackie English. Jackie, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Ah, yes. I'm happy to have you here. <laughs> so, where are you originally from? Uh, originally, I'm from Toronto, and then I lived in Quebec City briefly, Montreal for a long time, and then I found myself back in Toronto. Oh, when did you live in Montreal? Um, I'm mostly for university and slightly after that. Where did you go to university? Uh, McGill, McGill University. 
I also went to McGill for my master's degree. Now, did you have a childhood dream of who you wanted to be as a grown-up? Um, I mean, I, as a, I had different dreams in terms of professions, for sure. I went through different phases. I went through, when I was always very small when I was a child, so I thought jockey was a good option. Um, I went through pilot. I went through architect. Uh, so I went through, I think I even briefly wanted to be a cop because it was a nice cop who came to my school once. But, um, yeah, I had different different thoughts. And then eventually I sort of became very interested in environmental issues. So I thought for for a moment I would be involved in environmentalism of some kind. It's interesting, as you were saying, a jockey, pilot, architect, all of those involve a sense of exploration and adventure. And what you do now also does. When did you first get this desire to perform? Um, I I don't know that I really think I got a desire to perform. I mean, uh, I it was more like it found found me, so to speak. Like when I I didn't actually think of it as an option for most of my life, which is kind of funny because my mom ran a theater growing up, so I was around performers my whole life. I was around you know, the best actors in the country from an early age, but, you know, they seemed so, you know, talented and skilled, um, and I didn't feel like I had that. I mean, I was also, you know, eight, and they were maybe in their 30s and stuff, but um, it didn't occur to me that that would be learn- learnable. Also, it was, it was very clear a difficult life, so nobody, everybody since an early age encouraged me to get out and do something else, so that's definitely what I attempted to do. And then eventually I got, I did do something else and I went out into the real world and I realized I wasn't who I was at all. And, and I sort of, I always felt like being an actor was almost more of a diagnosis than anything else. It's like, oh, you're an actor, your life will be very hard from now on. So what did you do in the so-called real world? Well, I did a degree in uh, honors mechanical engineering and then I was a business technology consultant after that. And I was sort of moonlighting as a, as a dancer and a, in a Latin dance company on the side, but there was definitely sort of a double life going on. And then when I discovered that I was an actor, that I needed to be a full-time creative, I had to leave that world in order to pursue it. That's fabulous, because a lot of people, even if they discovered that, might be too afraid to make such a a change in identity, a change of story, so to speak. You said your mother had a theater. What was the theater? It was the factory theater. Really? Yeah. Oh, who was your mom? Diane English. Wow, I didn't know that. I was just at the factory theater last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she picked that building and everything. She picked up what? She picked, She selected that building. She's the one who found the, the current building that the factory is in, which is a pretty fantastic heritage building. Yeah. It really mm-hmm. is. That's beautiful. For the listeners, Factory Theatre is one of the uh, well-established theatres here in Montreal. In Toronto, I mean. In Toronto. I've got Montreal in the back of my mind. Well, that's that's where my mom is now, so you're just... Oh. What does she, <laughs> what does she do there? Uh, she just works on a very, various projects. She actually went to film school at Laval after the Factory Theatre and went to Montreal and she does different uh, publicity and content creation projects. Hmm. Now, what obstacles and fears 
did you face to become a professional performer? Because it's a scary thing. Well, I guess mostly I was concerned uh, financially. Um, it's a it's a difficult path. There's like not a lot of guarantees to it, um, and I guess I was concerned that I I wouldn't have the the sort of necessary aptitudes to excel at it, and I, I also felt a certain amount of guilt because I, I had a job and I had things that you know many other people were wanting. You know, they were it was very competitive to get the position that I was in, and then it seemed sort of ungrateful in a way to be looking elsewhere. And I had a good aptitude for that job as well. People would tell me I would go places with it. So um, to sort of throw away great, you know, potential and, um, you know, potential revenue security to sort of go off and <laughs> attempt to do something you're not even sure if, if you can, it's, you know, it's where it actually becomes scarier to stay than to go because staying would just be so miserable that going actually becomes the least scary option and that's when you take it. That sounds fascinating what you just told me about um, the struggle. That feeling of uh, feeling guilty almost as if, you know, you were giving up something serious for something frivolous. Mm -hmm. Um, So you must have had a lot of self-talk around that trying to keep you from making the move um i i think so i think in your behavior though tends to show you what you're actually thinking and if you look at my behavior i was like hoarding money like a crazy person like you would think if you were making a certain amount of money you would live a certain lifestyle you know at least to to sort of take advantage of that especially after having been a student for so long but i wasn't i was basically still living like a student and just like Supporting it because I think somewhere in my being I knew that the clock was ticking. I wouldn't be able to stay there very long, and eventually I was going to be out in the world, and it was going to be a transition period. And I was sort of just like a squirrel instinctively gets ready for the winter. I was ex- instinctively getting ready for that change. Mm, great image. When did you become interested in burlesque? Well, I I didn't specifically intentionally get interested in burlesque. I, my early impressions of burlesque were not favorable, but I ended up in a dance group that was, I guess, originally more like sexy contemporary dance. Like it was very sensual, very sexual, very feminine, but it wasn't particularly burlesque. We did um, we did long form theatrical dance, and it was all very sexually charged and sexually driven, but it wasn't burlesque. We didn't change outfits even necessarily um that was in the choreography and then i stayed with that group for many years and as the group progressed the artistic director of that group became more and more enchanted in burlesque and as she did the group which was sort of manifesting her dance visions was put through um an evolution into burlesque and then it became very burlesque and became sort of definitely focused on on the tease but it wasn't and then you just sort of find yourself wearing less and less and less. And I remember the first time I referred to myself as a burlesque dancer, she got really happy because I didn't even realize that I, I considered myself that until, I, until somebody else pointed out that I'd said it. Now, did you face any resistance to your career choices from people close to you? Uh, 
not what you changing from corporate to performing? No, or, no, or going no. into burlesque specifically. Yeah, going to burlesque specifically. Um, I well, again, because it was such a gradual evolution, I, there was no announcement that anyone had opportunity to react to. It was just sort of a, a natural progression over years. And I started being, in the beginning, I think I was pretty stealth about it. I mean, aside from promoting it as a show. But, you know, over time, your your promotion gets wider and wider and your, you know, the types of images and videos you post become less and less censored. Mm-hmm. So there was no, like, there was no, like, singular day that anyone could have resisted against. And I think overall the reactions were more positive than I would have guessed. You know, like, I doesn't seem to... If, if it has affected people negatively, they certainly aren't sharing those opinions with me. I mean, usually, you know, if we're strong enough in our vision and people do resist that, then we realize, well, um, we care about them, but uh, they don't belong in our lives. You know, we move on. Uh, but you mentioned before, how about making the transition from, you know, a more traditional job into performance? Uh, well, yeah, so I, I touched on that briefly in that I was around performance my whole life growing up. And then I was um, always dancing. And then I was leading this sort of double life where I was working in corporate world, but I was dancing on the side. And I didn't feel comfortable um, leaving that corporate world for living just as a dancer because dancing is one of the hardest, if not the hardest profession to monetize. Uh, And then I realized that actually I was an actor and then I felt much better about it. And that's when I was able to leave. But I don't, I didn't, I didn't like think it was a good idea. I just discovered that's who I was. So then it became obvious. Like if, if you're a fish and you, you figure out you're a fish, you jump in the water, you don't stay on land, right? They say that a fish doesn't even know, you know, uh, (laughs) what water is. It's just, it's just there. That's where they belong. Do you think that when a woman shows an over-interest in sexuality, especially in her, her work choices, do, do some people begin to treat her differently? Um, I No doubt when a woman or any human does anything overtly, people react in various ways. So sexuality would certainly be a powerful, a powerful example of that. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it would depend on the person and on the context to sort of pinpoint how. Have you experienced that? And the reason I'm focusing on sexuality is because to many people, men and women in our society, it's still something misunderstood, fascinated by people are, and they're also afraid of it, threatened by it. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky question because rarely do you have the opportunity to be treated one way and then show a bunch of sexuality and then see if that treatment changes. Uh, so it's hard to sometimes delineate what is causing any kind of treatment. But I think overall, um, there's a lot of uh, limitations and barriers and, and, and scary lines drawn in, around sexuality too. People get worried about crossing lines. And so when you cross lines for them first, um, sometimes that relaxes them and then they feel like they don't have to self-censor as much or, or worry about where the lines are as much. They can just sort of be more easy in themselves. 
Not that it means they're crossing any more or less lines. It just means they're less worried about it. Mm-hmm. So it can, it can be pretty uh, relaxing. Interesting insight. I didn't think of that. When did you decide to direct films? Well, I don't know that I did decide to direct films. I saw a post for a festival called Toronto Urban Film Festival, which is the silent one-minute film festival that happens during TIFF. And it said that there'd be 2.7 million viewers for the festival because the, they play in the subways. And I was like, oh, that sounds great because everyone's going to see this if I make a film. And it's only one minute and it's silent. And I'd had this film idea in my mind for years. I had a little short film idea that I thought might work well in a, in a little short context. But I feel like I, if I look back on it, I've always kind of been directing like mini movies. Like even as a small child, I would do activities and I would imagine what it looked like from different angles and like what story I was and um, was telling emotional arc I was expressing like you know if I was like folding laundry in my room I would see it from like a high angle to the left and I would try to look melancholy you know or, <laughs> just like you know if you're crossing the street you try to put on a little emotional show for the driver to see if they could maybe convince them that your day was going a particular way mm. so Again, I feel like it was more of like a, a discovery of who I was rather than a choice. I don't think it was a choice. The wand chooses the wizard. Ah, I like that. The wand chooses the wizard. Wizard. That's going to be one of the quotes in this podcast. <laughs> it's a quote from Harry Potter. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. And did anything about directing scare you, the idea of it? Not at all. No. Nope. So, what steps did you take to do your first film, your short I, film? I, I made a film. That was the step I took. I made a film, and I submitted it to a festival, and it won first prize of the festival. And then I took that as a sign that I should make some more. So I, made a, I got a bunch of people together, a collective um, of people together, um, to, to uh, make, I guess we ended up making eight films in 10 months and then I had a big gala screening with a big party and everything like that and and um, many sponsors and people love the screening like it just it was just such a exciting time and I feel like that in essence making those men that many films in that short amount of time was my film school like that was boot camp because every time I needed to figure out how to do something would run around ask people get up get the information and figure it out what did you shoot on? What kind of equipment were you using? Oh, back then, uh, nothing fancy. Just uh, just your class, like DSLR kind of thing. We did everything for no money, so there wasn't there wasn't any expensive expensive equipment. I got my first uh, expensive camera when I got a Babelfat grant to make a film called Duty Calls, written by Sean Cullen, who had originally pitched me the idea for for the collective. But he hadn't finished the script when we were shooting the collective stuff. And um, when I saw the script, it, it definitely would have benefited from from the nice budget to make it awesome. So we did that on a on a Red Epic, actually. A Red Epic? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just had a little glitch in my brain here. I was going to ask you. Oh, yeah, NIMBY. Was that the first one that won the, the prize, NIMBY? Yeah, that, that was the number one film. Yep. And does that mean not in my backyard? Uh, yeah, it does. So in the movie, Nimby is a very simple story because it's, it's a minute. 
well, basically there's a, a sort of an, a couple and they're having like a wonderful Sunday, like they're strolling, they're having a wonderful time and they see a man bleeding from his head on the street. He's been injured and the girl is kind of thinking maybe they should stop, maybe they should do something. Um, but they look around and there's clearly other people there, their phones are out, like they're stopping, they're involved. So the, the guy's kind of like, yeah, they, they've got it, they've handled it, we don't need to get involved and then they check over to the other people's phones and, like, one's taking a picture and one's, like, texting about it. And another person was just on their phone trying to meet somebody at that location. And because everyone just kind of figured somebody else was handling it and it doesn't get handled at all. Mm-hmm. The irony of this story is that it's about not helping. And, uh, and, and when we shot it in Leslieville, so many people tried to stop and help our actor who was bleeding from the head. <laughs> we didn't really... Uh, doesn't ring true in Leslieville, that's for sure. Yes, that is quite an ironic twist. Where in Leslieville? That's where I live. I well, I used the Red Sandcastle Theater as base camp for that. Uh, and that's on Gerard. No, it's on Queen, Queen and Logan. Oh yes, yes, I know. I was there recently. Yeah, it's a small theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, when did you make that? Oh, I don't know. It was, it was a long time ago, like maybe 2011. Jackie, have you had mentors? Uh, yeah, I've had I've had I've had many mentors. I definitely get mentorship whenever I can. This past summer, I actually uh, director shadowed two incredible directors on two different TV series. So that was a very um, interesting mentorship situation and I did a it was very illuminating and I learned a lot. Who uh who were the directors? I shadowed Sud Sutherland on a show called Frankie Drake and I shadowed Ann Wheeler on a show called Private Eyes. Nice. They're both really strong directors but their their style is very different. So it was nice and the shows are both strong shows but they're you know um they're also different handled differently. For various reasons, so it was interesting to go from one to the other and kind of see see the contrast. Now, when it comes to this new film that is currently playing, Becoming Burlesque, mm-hmm. why did you choose this particular story? Well, I had been dancing in the, in the burlesque company, and I wanted to do something in that world. I wanted to do something very visual. Um, you know, often for a first feature, your budget is constrained, but I didn't want the constrained budget to to not have a, a physical visual component to the film and uh it is a natural burlesque is a natural story like you're always it's every every single burlesque act is a transformation of some kind and i'd also had um some friends in toronto who were muslim and new immigrants to canada and they were having some i guess it was perceptions of them were not accurate to what their personalities were like often in their day-to-day lives. And this was before I wrote it, before sort of this Muslim integration issue was was a hot news item. I wrote it before the whole Syrian war, before the American Muslim ban, before the Niqab um, drama with the um, uh, Canadian government. Um, so it was really, I, but it felt like it felt like it was an under-discussed topic um, that I could serve the world by, you know, showing some Muslim characters that were true to the ones I had met and not the sort of 
typical tropes that you see in media. And I was also fascinated by the the connection between burlesque and hijabi culture and that they're both very misunderstood. They're both sort of assumed to be exploitive in some nature. And certainly there are cases where either one might be exploitive, but there's also plenty of women choosing both of those things. And the perception is still is still sort of negative and they both involve how much a woman is wearing, in one case very little, in one case extra extra cloth. And it it just seemed absurd that there should be some middle ground ultimate like ideal amount of clothing that a woman needs to wear before she's, you know, has a certain value. So I, I, I intentionally compared and contrast those two extremes. So tell us, tell our audience the storyline of Becoming Burlesque. Well, it's a story, it's set in Toronto, and I, I feel like it's a very, it's a story about Toronto culture in the sense that the lead girl, Fatima, is a mixed uh, race. Her father is Middle Eastern and her mom is um, from Northern Ontario. And her and her brother grew up in Toronto and she she's a practicing Muslim woman. And then she falls in love with Berlin's cabaret. And she, that's the first time she sort of really feels that she belongs somewhere. And that sense of belonging is very appealing. But obviously she doesn't, she has to kind of reconcile that with her family and her own spiritual beliefs in order to continue. It sounds like a great conflict. I mean, it's a strong conflict. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to see it tomorrow night. <laughs> I can't wait for you to see it. Yeah. So describe your journey to get the film made. Because, I mean, now, you know, you're working on a feature. It's going to involve more money. It's going to involve more challenges. So I wrote the script, um, actually the first draft, pretty quickly. Um, but uh, so when making a movie, actually finding the money is the hardest and the longest part. I wrote it pretty quickly, actually, at least the first draft, and then I continued to revise as I got notes and as I shopped it around. And then you package it, you try to pull a team together. Um, and if you know people, that doesn't necessarily take that long either. But finding the money is very tricky because everyone, nobody wants to be first in. Uh, everybody wants is in conditional on other people being in. So it ends up being you have to line up a lot of a lot of people before you kind of knock them all down with the bowling ball, and, and you go to telefilm with your fifty percent completely financed film in order to get their their side of the money. So it does take it does take a lot of time. I tried to talk a lot of people into giving me money, which is tricky because the odds of making the money back are not favorable necessarily. So you really have to give people other other um, value for their participation. Maybe it's pure philanthropy. Maybe it's uh, because they want you know a, a credit or they want to see how that world works or you know visit set or get involved or. Where they just enjoy being supportive of an artist or different things, um, and often the best way to do it is I've found is to get money that's not significant to that person. So you sort of cobble together many small amounts, and then you have some tax credits, and then you get your telefilm and maybe a grant if you're lucky, and then then you get to shoot it. How long did it take you from the conception to getting the money and actually starting the film? I don't know, like four four years, I think. Four years. Yeah. Wow. And did you, at any point, use crowdsourcing? Uh, no, I always planned to actually build a whole campaign. I found prizes, and I started making video content for it, but that was going to be sort of a last resort. 
Um, if I hadn't gotten telefilm, I probably would have gone that route. But like, thankfully, I did. And how long did it take you once you started shooting to complete it? Oh, we shot it in 14 days uh, with cast and then one day exterior. And then um, I, I guess it took a number of months after that to sort of finish the editing and post it and all that stuff. But the, really the long part is finding the money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, were there any moments when you didn't think you would succeed? Um, I think there was a... Uh, I don't know if there was a moment where I thought I wouldn't succeed, but there was definitely a moment where I thought um, that maybe maybe I, sh I shouldn't pursue this anymore, you know? Um, I think it was like right before I got the telephone money, actually. I was just like... I'm out. <laughs> uh, I did everything. I did everything that I could possibly do. And I, I don't know if, like, I don't know if this is uh, what the world wants. And then then telephone came through, so I was like, oh, nice. here we go. Now, how did you choose your actors? And a lot of the dancers I pulled from the company I was with, dancing with. And I uh, did a general edition and found the brother, actually two years or so before he shot, just to get as part of my packaging process. And uh, some of the actors or people I know from my childhood, the guy playing the father is an old friend of my mom, so he was on my Facebook. And I actually lost the original actor and asked him over Christmas if he would do it. And I think the, it was really a case of the cast finding the film, because he's brilliant in it. And Severn Thompson, who plays the mom, another, um, her father was friends with my mom when I was growing up, so I've known her forever. Uh, and she came to the audition and just knocked it out of the water. Like, nobody else auditioning for that role had any, could even came close to understanding what, what the character was. Um, and then uh, other people from other, like, dance circuits, and, and I've worked on other films, so I, I uh, know people from other audition tapes. And then the lead came through my producer, who's also an agent. And when you were talking about making the film, he just said, I have the perfect person for you. And I met her, and, and she was. And that kind of just, it was really, really fortunate and perfect. Yeah. I always feel that the actors find the film. Even if you go and try to cast the wrong actors in a film, something happens, and they'll quit. The cast finds the film. What agency did your lead come from? Uh, the characters. Characters, yeah. Good agency. Mm -hmm. Now, you've kind of already answered some of this when you spoke about why you chose the story. But as you worked on it, did you enrich your understanding of what the story means to you personally? Um, I didn't. I, I really wanted to make a movie that I wanted to watch. That was sort of my goal. It's like if nobody else ends up watching this movie, I want to enjoy watching this movie. But I'm an entertainer at heart, so I did want it to be, you know, an audience-friendly piece. Like I, I did want it, it to entertain people as much as it was about some complex, complex topics or, you know, to have themes that were nuanced. I definitely want people to walk away, you know, having, you know, laughed a bit and enjoyed it and gone on a little roller coaster of emotion. So and I, I'm an entertainer, so I, I didn't really do it to as any kind of personal therapy. I really did it because I thought it would be enjoyable. But yeah, but it has a theme that's important. It's not just, this is not like a lighthearted comedy. No, the themes are very important and they, yeah. they sort of reflect my lens on, on civilization, on, on Toronto and on culture in general. Mm -hmm. And what makes a person is a person 
you know, their DNA as a person, their environment or as a person, their choices, and what makes an extraordinary person, what makes somebody, you know, be different than the pack and they go against the grain. All those, all those themes are interesting to me. Mm. Worthy themes indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a big audacious dream that scares you? Uh, audacious dream. I don't yeah, know. I'm talking about like a huge ambition. Uh, l- let me articulate that a little more. There's a, a wonderful thought leader right now named Peter Diamandis who's he's at the forefront of a lot of important change. And he encourages people to think in terms of what he calls an MTP, massively transformative purpose in life. And then out of that, to create what he calls a moonshot. And the moonshot, by definition, is something that's probably beyond your reach, but it excites you and that's what you're going to dedicate your energy to, to go for. It's scary. Big ambition. Not as like, you know, my goal is to earn $100,000 next year. That's not what I would consider. I mean, it might be exciting for somebody, but... Mm-hmm. That's not an MTP. Do you have something like that, especially as an artist who's growing and as you see yourself I, expanding? I think, I think, I think my, my ambition would be to, and it, it, like you said, it's probably not, not possible, but I would really love it if if sort of the, the masses, if you will, if, if they could, if we could reach them with, with our independent works and even I owned a bar for a while called Bread and Circus and that was our mandate we were actually one of the first if not the first venue in Toronto to pair you know theater performance and that kind of stuff with with like a bar because we really wanted we wanted to make you know like independent like local art a, a really like fun outing that like regular people could come out to like it you know it's I find that sometimes these scenes get kind of insular you know like independent theater artists go see independent theater and independent filmmakers go see independent films you know festivals are certain often like that but i mean what about all those people like you know drinking on saturday and friday night on king street like what if they what if i could get them out to a film and what if they could really really love it you know that's kind of i would love to see kind of local culture being consumed locally why did you say that you think that would not be possible um I, it, it's. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying it, it's definitely, uh, it's difficult, and it's it, it's not really happening. So, and it's it's it often comes down to to money, to marketing money and packaging and getting information out to the to those people in a way that makes it appealing to them. People don't like to go outside of their comfort zone, so people really it takes it takes um takes some doing but i don't think it's impossible i just think it takes more people to believe that it is have you approached netflix i have not approached netflix well they may very well be interested in this film uh they might certainly if anyone from netflix is watching this or listening to this they're welcome to call me i have noticed that netflix seems particularly focused on their own content creation so um I'm not sure if if I, I would be more interested actually in talking to Netflix about my next creation and like actually co-producing it with Netflix. Sometimes I I would imagine when Netflix acquires something that is uh, a little more indie like this, it might 
not get the same kind of like banner features, which is how most people make their Netflix selections. It comes down to the same phenomenon I just described socially. I would give it a shot. I would just call them up and say, hey, I've got this fascinating film. Maybe you'll like it. You know? Maybe. Maybe. The worst, Maybe. the worst thing that could be, uh, could happen is lack of interest. But well, the worst thing that could happen would actually be as if they didn't want to pay very much for it, and then it, I couldn't sell it to anyone else, and then it just sat at the bottom of Netflix, and no one saw it. That would be the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Lack of interest would be sort of an honest answer that I wouldn't mind. If they said we love it, we're interested, we want to push it, then I, that would be the ultimate answer. I can somehow, I don't know why, I haven't seen it yet, but I somehow have a feeling that thematically they may be interested in something like that. Or a spinoff series. Maybe they do a spinoff series. Yeah. What, do you have your next project lined up? I don't have it lined up, but I have it in my mind. I have the next film in my mind that I'm just kind of working on a draft of it. So it's, uh, it's in its early, early stages. Do you want to talk about it or not? Uh, I think it's probably too early to talk about, but I will just say that it, it it is a different lens on the same sort of Toronto culture. I'm very inspired by, I find that Toronto has a very interesting hybridization of of various cultures, and, and uh, I will also say that there's a crime, but a little bit of, I want to show some of the sort of dark and light sides of, of the city. Yes, it is a very, very uh, fascinating culture, it really is. It's a, an amazing blend. Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I I don't know if I really believe in trying to see myself in five years. Um, I think that I aim at different things. I would certainly love to direct television. I come from a, a long time in television, and I feel like television is where a lot of the character and story lives in this present day, um, especially in Canada. Um, so I would love to do that. I try not to like get too stuck on an outcome because then that's when, if if another opportunity comes along, you you want to be able to seize those as well. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just off the cuff, uh, what is your favorite thing on TV? I watch a lot of Netflix comedy specials, and I watch them from around the world. I like watching global comedians because you get a real sense of different places, seeing what what makes people laugh oh. in those different cultures. How about Hannah Gadsby? I haven't seen it. She's on Netflix. Hannah Gadsby's show is called Nanette. Yeah, I really just watch the comedy specials. <laughs> I find if I watch a show, then you go no. down a sort of a binge. No, 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 it's not a show. It's it's okay. it's a one-time stand-up comedian from, I believe, New Zealand. She's yeah, okay. Yeah, Hannah Gadsby. She's brilliant. I have a feeling you will love her show. All right, I will check it out for yeah, sure. It actually pushes the boundaries of what comedy is. Mm. It's quite something to watch. I've watched it twice uh, within a week. Hmm. She, she's really a force. She's brilliant. She's funny. And she's got something really important to say to the world. Well, I will certainly have to watch it. Yeah. What is your favorite book? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Harry Potter, probably. 
What? You laughed like a little kid when you said that. It's like, <laughs> like, I, you know, it's well, like, the whole the whole idea of favorites is is very uh, childlike in my mind. Like, I, when I'm being silly, I ask people what their favorite dinosaur is. Like, um, but yeah, I would say, I would say the Harry Potter has. I enjoy that. It affected me a certain amount. I went to like a Potterhead, but I think there's some nice themes in there that um, are actually sort of groundwork for for paradigms in life in general. Oh yeah, I mean that's why they're so popular around the world. Potterhead, mm-hmm. Potterhead. I never heard of that. That's good. I don't even know if that's a thing. I just sort of what popped out. Well, you just made it a thing. Mm-hmm. So, is there one particular Harry Potter book that stands out for you? Uh, honestly, I wouldn't even be able to delineate them at this point. To me, it's just one okay. long story. Okay. So I don't. I don't know. How about? I do a- know that. Uh, I, I do know the two themes that I really like in Harry Potter is one, the idea that there was good and evil in Harry, and he uh, Gryffindor and Slytherin, and then he chose to be Gryffindor. The idea that your choices about who you want to be are more powerful than your innate potential. Um, I really, I really like that theme. Um, and I also like how they blurred the lines between who was good and who was evil. There was, you know, like Snape was a brilliantly designed character because he was certainly not classically a hero, but in a way he ended up being the most heroic person in the in the film and mm, the book. Mm, nice. I also like that there's moments in those stories that you can't even get the moment. You cannot even get the moment unless you read it twice. Mm. The last thing that Snape says to Harry, the last thing he says to Harry, you can't even understand what he's saying until you finish that book, find out the truth about him, reread the book, and then when he says it the second time you read it, you, you lose your mind because you didn't. You, there's no, you don't have the information to to have it land the first time. You know. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say this with no spoilers, of course. Do you have a favorite quote besides the one from Harry Potter before? Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't, because that was not a quote, that's just a term, a quote. Um, well, it, mm, is, it is a quote. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a statement. So if it's from Harry Potter, it's a quote. Um, I, uh, I've come up with some good quotes, but a quote that I didn't, as somebody else came up with that resonated with me a great deal was, when it's too hard for everybody else, it's just right for me. Who said that? Wendell Scott. Who is Wendell Scott? Um, he, I think he was a, he was a African American race car driver. Mm-hmm. So he got a lot of flack for uh, for racing, and that was his response. Nice. You know, people said, people said, you know, you're getting death threats. Like, you know, maybe you shouldn't continue. You know, it's it's getting too too much. And he was just like, eh. It was too hard for everybody else. It's just right for me. Like, <laughs> those are some winning words right there. Winning words. <laughs> so how can people get to see your film here in Toronto? Well, right now it's playing at the Carlton Cinema at uh, 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. until the 25th. Um, then there will be future screenings and opportunities to see it that will be announced with great vigor on the Instagram, which is at Becoming Burlesque. And the Facebook, which is Becoming Burlesque. So if you can't get there before Thursday, or even if you can, I would join up with those groups and see some of the behind-the-scenes photos and the other sets from the still still photography from set and uh, and keep keep track of what's going on. Because we have some neat things planned for the film, actually. 
Uh, so that would be the best way. Fantastic. So once again, uh, storytellers, it's at Becoming Burlesque, Instagram, Facebook, and if you're in Toronto, it's at the Carlton Cinema, which is where I will be tomorrow night at 9 p.m. And right now, do you know if it will get wide, maybe worldwide distribution? Uh, I certainly am certainly gunning for that. I've had I've met people who've indicated it would travel very well. Um, so it's just about putting in the the legwork and getting it to the people that can help that happen. Mm-hmm. If you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing in the world, only one thing, what would it be? Change one thing in the world? Yeah. I... More parking downtown would be nice. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> um, I... I don't know, it might be nice to have uh, time to be more, more uh, optional. Like it'd be nice to move move uh, backwards and forwards in time. We only ever go one one way at one pace, and I find that limiting. That was an interesting sound we just heard. What was that? An interesting sound. Yeah, you didn't hear it. I don't know. No, I heard it on my end. It was interesting. It was, anyway, um, it was like a an announcement, like a ringing announcement. Maybe it was something in my computer. But, oh yeah, uh, I didn't hear it. That's funny. Having more time, you know what, eventually with what's happening uh, with digital technology, I wouldn't be surprised if we develop that ability to travel in time. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts that you would like to leave people with? Uh, mm, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I have a final thought. Your thoughts are not final, they just go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much because uh, um, you're very. Don't listen to anybody. Excuse me. What was that? Uh, no, go on. Did you say something, or was I just hearing something else there? Oh, I just said don't listen to anybody. That was my final thought. Oh, okay. Don't, don't listen to yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Don't listen to anybody. I there's a line from Bob Dylan that I I love. Don't follow leaders and watch your parking meters. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I really want to thank you for being here today. You contributed a lot. Um, your story is inspirational. It's. Uh, I know that there are a lot of people who dream about doing something that they love, that's creative, and they hold themselves back. And people you just listened to someone who had those thoughts but she didn't hold herself back and thank you for sharing that with us and uh, I wish you and your film and all of your future creative efforts a lot of success because you're telling stories that deserve to be shared with the world well thank you very much it was a pleasure Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Jackie English. Jackie is a very inspiring young woman. She basically lives life without a safety net. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But for now, pay this forward 
let people know that they can enjoy this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. Make sure that you visit that website and claim your free gift that I created for you. A downloadable ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. What you'll find in that book is empowerment for all of your personal and business communication. Also take advantage of the offer from our sponsor, Audible. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose a free audiobook. I was going to say ebook, but no, it's an audiobook of your choice from more than 180,000 titles. Also get one month totally free the use of all of Audible's service. The most important lesson or takeaway that I would offer from this particular interview with Jackie English is the courage to live from your heart and not from your head, to live a life based on your strongest passions, your desires, what you really want as opposed to what you think you should do, living a life of choice as opposed to a life of obligation. A little more on this topic. There's a very powerful thought leader named Dan Sullivan. You've heard me talk about him before. He has a company called Strategic Coach. He's written many books. One of them is called Wanting What You Want. And it's a powerful, simple but powerful book that gives you permission to not justify your choices for doing things. You don't have to say, I'm doing something because... That is the way that I am going to show my altruism or I'm going to save the world. If in your heart of hearts, it's not something you really love. You simply do things because you love them and you don't have to justify them. That is certainly what I get when I talk to and listen to Jackie English's story. So during the next week, take a good, honest look at yourself and admit if you're doing things that you feel you have to do, but you'd rather not be doing. The moment you try to challenge them, the story that will come up is going to sound something like this. Come on, be responsible, be realistic. Be mature. Be an adult. You can't just do what you want. I'm saying to you, have the courage to challenge that and begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life?
Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.